Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate. I'm your host, Garth Sundem, Communications Director at MAPS. And today we're talking about patient education strategies for medical affairs. Joining us are Tim Michalishvili, CEO and co-founder of Emedia Pharma, and Riaz Abbas, Learning and Performance Lead, JPAC Medical with Amgen. Views expressed are those of the presenters and do not reflect endorsement by their organizations. So uh, medical affairs is struggling to figure out how to compliantly engage patients. And today we're talking about one aspect of this, this engagement, and that is patient education. Uh, so Riaz, I was hoping you could start us out by talking about why patient education is important. Well, thank you, Garth and Tim, for having me uh, to continue our conversation in this podcast series. It's my pleasure to be here. And before I start, I, I must um, add a disclaimer. Garth, the opinions that I'm going to express and views I'm going to share are my own and not of my employer, Amgen. Yep. Why is patient education important? It's a really, really relevant and important topic. I believe patients are the ultimate, ultimate customer or consumer of the medicines and products we develop. And I also strongly feel that as credible and ethical developers of medicines, it's our responsibility to provide you know, fair, balanced, accurate information relating to, relating to our products to our customers. And I feel more recently and, and, and quite more, uh, it's becoming more and more um, uh, upfront that there is a whole uh, you know, evolution of patient-centered health Healthcare um, that demands a joint approach from a, from an HCP perspective, uh, including patient in that that decision making. Um, and I think there is now mounting evidence. There's an increasing evidence on better outcomes in health literate patients. So if patients have a there's a higher literacy among certain patient groups, there's a lot of evidence from HIV, oncology, rare cancers, even Hep C showing that those patients tend to do better. Yes, there are some caveats. Social determinants of health play a role. So patients who are more health literate tend to be more uh, socially, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the higher end. But, but even if you balance those parameters out, it comes out as one of the big, big factors uh, in terms of outcomes. So I think if you look at all of those factors, I think it's really important and critical that we the patient education um, is fr front and center. The only thing I'll add is we must, we obviously have to follow uh, respective codes of conduct with, and internal policies within our organizations in providing that information to patient and patient groups. Okay, well, so health literacy helps to create health outcomes. Patients used to get this education and still do from their HCPs, so, Tim, why is it important for medical affairs to have the capability to provide patient education, what, more directly, or, or do we still go through HCPs? Yeah. yeah, well, again, it's a pleasure to be here uh, to talk to you about this important topic, Garth and Riaz. Uh, I think patient education is just at the forefront of um, what pharma and medical affairs can do in order to change our ultimate value proposition and, you know, really the reputation of pharma. Uh, we are ultimately in the business of information. 
and communicating that information in, in terms of medical affairs. Uh, but we also converge with our cross-functional partners and commercial in that continuum of healthcare, where we help healthcare professionals identify the right patients, suitable patients, and they ultimately help provide access to those medications. So education alone is now uh, incredibly important, as well as the ultimate access to those medications. And so we can intervene, I think, in both of those areas in terms of education. Now, the educational balance or equilibrium, if you will, is somewhat shifting. Uh, And the pendulum is swinging, I think, towards more of the patients. And patients are becoming consumers, I think, as Riaz alluded to, uh, where... There's a recent study, 2017, Heather Liu um, and PLOS One, that surveyed over 2,000 physicians uh, across various different settings. Uh, and they asked whether or not they prescribed a medication or a treatment that they didn't feel was necessary. 20% of whom uh, actually responded that uh, positively, that, they, that their treatments they admitted were not necessary. And when asked why, uh, most 80% said because of fear of lawsuit litigation. And secondly, 59% because uh, patients demanded those treatments. So patients are becoming much more proactive than ever. And we, we have to learn how physicians educate patients as well in order to model how we can best educate them as well. Okay. And so one of the best examples I have of that uh, that I'll share very quickly is Dr. Keith Ferdinand, a cardiologist uh, who's written uh, publications and textbooks. Uh, he's the author of the JNC7 guidelines, and he actually had a non-revenue generating room in his very busy clinic where patients went and they listened to videos, to lots of articles that he actually prescribed them to. Uh, to uh, and, uh, and afterwards, he would actually ask them and re- refer to them to apply to them. So I, I think uh, we need more, um, more of those types of approaches, I think, in the healthcare setting, which is now becoming somewhat of a challenge in terms of how distracted um, uh, all of our stakeholders are, including patients. So, so patients are driving their own care and and asking for medicines or or treatments and becoming more involved in their own treatment journey. And so I guess if, if patients are going to be driving their treatment journey, they need to be informed uh, of you know what the best treatment journey is. So Rios, how do we provide this? How does medical affairs educate patients? Yeah, that's a that's a great great question and a great segue. I would say, and again, I, I would highlight the fact that it can be sensitive and possibly even controversial topic in some of our organizations. I, I believe the last I looked at the, the code of ethics, there is no way it says that we, there's no compliance requirement basically in bringing benefit to patients. Oh, okay. So unfortunately, sometimes what happens in my experience, we get too tied up with the compliance framework, what we can, can't do. And if you look at most code of conducts now, there's a lot of gray area. And more importantly, they are moving towards principle-based practices. So I think by part, so if we keep that front and center, that what the information we are providing is accurate, is going to bring benefit. Because let's be honest, our medicines don't actually, uh, can actually also cause harm, potential harm. We have adverse events, we have side effects, and we monitor those very, very carefully. Now, how we do it is, in my opinion, partnering with 
the right stakeholders. So there is an increasing role of uh, what I call a peer educators or patient peers. So these are well-informed, highly literate from a health and clinical data perspective. We can we partner with them in providing that information. To Tim's point, we can also we should also be um, partnering with HCPs. In my experience, though, the information we provide has to be relevant to that particular stakeholder. So the information sometimes from medical and scientific affairs coming in can be a bit too technical jargon heavy. So by partnering with peer educators, as well as HCPs in my experience, we can actually make it more uh, relevant for the patient groups. So we can partner as developer, as uh, bastion of that information, partner with them and provide that information so that patients can ultimately benefit from the information. Well, so when we're interfacing with HCPs, I mean, that's been the traditional role of medical affairs, but our education was aimed, it sort of stopped with the HCP. You know, we're, we're helping them provide better care. Are we explicit now in some of the education that we're providing HCPs that, th- that it should flow through to patients? Or, or are we still just educating HCPs and they can do whatever they want with it? Tim, Tim what do you think? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I think you raise a very important question, and I'll continue off of health literacy and um, a lot of the, some of the misinformation that may take place that Riaz uh, just mentioned. Um, in order to also, um, you know, consider uh, how global our medical education is in terms of its impact uh, on, on on any level in any ter- in any. Uh, country, uh, right? Um, because of the access to various different channels, social media, uh, but also in terms of a lot of the rare diseases for which now treatments are being um, uh, made available to patients. So they, they may not even know that there is a treatment available for this particular rare disease, much less really be able to understand or trained to interpret that information correctly. And then in the language that is native to them. So, um, you know, I remember, you know, uh, patient education materials that our our commercial colleagues were developing, right? That we uh, we were then able to either uh, communicate or uh, you know, consider, you know, or, or communicate the the need for them. Um, uh, but but I think that medical affairs uh, can take more proactive uh, role in both. Uh, identifying that need and ultimately serving that, that need in multi, you know, in terms of in multiple different languages to make that education available and, and, uh, you know, and accessible as well. Uh, so I, I think, you know, in, in general, we, there are lots of, I think, restrictions that we can convert into opportunities in terms from terms, in terms of compliance. And now is uh, the appropriate time to do that. And with, in, in, in terms of that equal equilibrium of education, that's changing. Uh, those tasks, uh, you know, of education to HCPs can be also transformed into conversations, into building communities, partnering with patient advocacy groups as medical affairs uh, departments are now also being restructured, reorganized, also including patient advocacy groups within medical 
and, and then also convert, you know, really translating the quality of that education uh, into quantity in some different ways of not just expressing the, the acceptance of education, uh, but also the knowledge acquisition and behavioral outcomes and validating, going a layer, a layer deeper to validate that. Uh, you know, yeah. In, in, yeah, and in medical, for example, you know, uh, you know uh, payers, uh, payers are, uh, the, are sta- important stakeholders that sometimes medical has impact on. Uh, educating, let's say, uh, nurse managers or case, uh, ca- case managers of different health insurance plans on the adherence of medication. Because remember, once, uh, once you have that education, uh, a third of the patients do not really adhere to it, even as healthcare professionals. And so I remember being a proxy to patient education in terms of educating payers on the importance of adherence as a global initiative. So, well, so you brought up something I want to dig in on, and mm-hmm. and you started by saying misinformation. Uh, so, and you're saying that you know now is the time that medical affairs really has the opportunity and the responsibility to better educate patients. Riaz, is that partly because of the climate of misinformation? I completely agree with that. There is a big uh, misinformation is something that we have to be very, very careful of. We have a, I think social media has its pros and cons, as we know, and we are living in an age where information spreads faster. And there's unfortunately a lot of misinformation. And for that reason, I think we need to behave, uh, we need to partner and ensure that accurate information is also is more predominantly shared. The other thing I will add is that I think when you ask what should we be doing, I believe there are three things we need to do. Number one, I believe that we need to have right external partnerships I was alluding to. So we partner with the right patient groups, the rightly well-informed peer navigators and educators. And if there isn't one, we, we need to create that. The second thing we need to do is we need to get the right information with those stakeholders, develop the right information for patients, to your point, to, to limit the whole uh, situation around misinformation. And third, and probably the most important thing we need to do is to create better internal partnerships with our cross-functional partners to make sure, because our goal is ultimately the same, we're all striving towards better outcomes, so that there isn't this concern, oh, am I stepping on people's toes or how is that going to go? So having that internal collaboration is also very pivotal in making sure that we are fulfilling our, I believe, ethical responsibility in providing accurate information, which leads to benefit to patients. So that's interesting. I've heard a lot about stakeholder expansion, you know, looking beyond just the HCP to, you know, or just the person publishing in, you know, biggest on PubMed or presenting the most at ASCO. But I haven't heard stakeholder creation before. So you're saying if there isn't the peer navigator out there who you can find, maybe medical affairs needs to work to create some of this education infrastructure out in the world. Tim, what do you think about that? Should medical affairs be, I don't know what, creating their own stakeholders? Uh, yes, I think, and this list of stakeholders is growing. And uh, you know, during the life cycle of a product or a pipeline, 
that strategy in terms of whose perspectives you need to really consider and when also is changing. So I, I agree in general that, you know, uh, we have to be consistent, I think, with the ecosystem, with the, in our environment as, in terms of as medical affairs leaders and, and, and employees. Um, because that's changing. Our, our environment is changing. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, the COVID, right, the pandemic uh, really is a great example of that, uh, where there was a case of a medical affairs organization that uh, had a product for uh, that was used uh, th- that had unapproved uses as well. Uh, and uh, that uh, took the lead in direct-to-consumer education, not promotion, but education, um, uh, in, in order to, uh, to you know, share the correct and accurate data that Riaz was, was mentioning. And so uh, I think uh, patients uh, and all of our stakeholders are hungry for more information that's summarized in, in ways that can be digested. And, uh, you know, we can take the models of various different academic institutions that during the pandemic, you know, some uh, stopped their voluntary uh, endoscopy training programs in GI, for example, others continued virtually, right? Uh, Others uh, actually had a cataloged central repository in a form of YouTube channel, as well as Twitter, Twitter or you know, as well. So they adapted. And so we have to follow the same same course of action because I, I've seen examples of Eli Lilly and Pfizer having their own podcasts. Podcast is another way to actually uh, reach and educate patients in a way that they prefer. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, so reaching new audiences in new ways. And mm-hmm. my, you know, one of my takeaways from this podcast is that, again, health literacy equals, well, not equals, but at least promotes health outcomes. And we, we, we're reaching new people through social media, through podcasts, through YouTube, uh, but also in a landscape of a lot of, of challenge. So thank you, Tim and Riaz, for joining us today. To learn more about how medical affairs uh, approaches patient education, visit the MAPS Content Hub and sort for external education. That's medicalaffairs.org slash content hub. Don't forget to subscribe, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the MAPS podcast series, Elevate.